The incomparable Louis Armstrong views the world as it could be a wonderful world. How do we create a wonderful world? Satchmo, Solutions to Balance. And our guest today, April Lawson, answers that question with two words. Love, baby. Welcome, friends. You are listening to Solutions to Balance, and we are glad you have joined us. Solutions to Balance airs on WFMP 106.5 FM radio, following as part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our speakers and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today's Solutions to Balance program is the second in a two-part series that features April Lawson. April is the administrator and lead voice of the Better of the Braver Angels Debate and Public Discourse Program. Their concern is a growing divide between U.S. citizens and the uncivil discourse that has on more than one occasion erupted into violence. April, welcome to Solutions to Violence again. Welcome. We're happy to have you. I'm so glad to be here. It's great to be back. I loved it last time and I can't wait to continue the conversation. I'm going to share your biography again with folks in case there are those who did not hear this uh, last program. April Lawson now leads Braver Angels Debate and Public Discourse Program. She designed Braver Angels Debates and has grown the program from its first debate to serving over a thousand participants per month. She oversees a team of 50 volunteers and staff to administer all Braver Angels debate work and is lead voice in public facing communications. Previously, she provided research and editing for David Brooks' weekly column at the New York Times. Most recently, she co-founded and served as the associate director for Brooks's new Aspen Institute initiative, Weave the Social Fabric Project. She has also worked in the U.S. Treasury Department, the New Haven Mayor's office and as a senior consultant at Booz Allen Hamilton. April grew up in Kansas, studied anthropology at Yale, and now lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband, Dan, and her dog, June. April Lawson, last week, we discussed the growing discourse that exists between U.S. citizens, how that discourse has at times erupted into violence, and the fact that the U.S. is now divided, more divided than it has been since the Civil War. You explained that we can disagree with others, but that disagreement should be conducted with honesty and respect. We should avoid exaggeration and stereotypes and disagree accurately. And we should look for common ground. You also explained that papering over differences does not lead to reconciliation and that parties with different political opinions should seek truth while demonstrating respect for those with opposing opinions and a willingness to listen. Just to summarize last week's interview, before we move on, is there anything you want to add to that summary? No, I think that's great. Thank you. Well, April, you grew up in Kansas, so you shared with us a bit about that growing up in your home state last week. Uh, Would you briefly remind us, our new listeners, what experiences have brought you from Kansas to Director of Debates of Braver Angels? And how did this career contribute to your professional growth? Oh, absolutely. I So, <laughs> well, the first thing I would say is that, as we talked about a little bit last week, the it's funny because a lot of people think about being bilingual as like, you know, you know, Spanish, or you know, French, or you know, Arabic or something. But I actually feel like I grew up a little 
bit bilingual too, because I was, I grew up in a very liberal house in a very conservative evangelical place in Kansas. And so as soon as I walked out the door in the morning, I knew like, okay, we're not going to use the words human rights, economic justice. We're going to use words like patriotism and loyalty and personal responsibility and stuff like that. And I just learned it naturally, sort of like a little kid who learns a different language because it's spoken in their house. Since I was little, I have been sort of speaking both what I would call red language and blue language. And then an interesting thing happened to me when I went to college, which is I had been a liberal, like a hardcore liberal. And then I read these conservative thinkers who just rocked my world. <laughs> like I felt like they opened my eyes. And since I read them and was sort of deeply persuaded, I have been a conservative who's lived in liberal places. And so I just spent kind of my whole life working with these two worlds. And the thing that I could not forget if I tried is that there are people on both sides who have good hearts and who care about things I want them to care about. A, we're less different than we think. But B, in the ways that we are different, that's actually a great thing. Like they are protecting and valuing things that I actually do want protected, but that I don't pay as much attention to. And so it's funny, when I graduated college, I had no idea how to like use this, work in this. I knew that I liked cultural translation, but it took me a long time to figure out where do I belong professionally. And so I had a variety of different jobs. But the thing that was really a, a game changer for me was when I got to be David Brooks' assistant at the New York Times. And I <laughs> I can tell you a story. It took me seven years to get that job. And my little joke is that I stalked him, which is mostly a joke, <laughs> mostly. But I really wanted to work for him because the way that he approached politics and issues was the way that I thought people should. It was his, I happen to agree with him on many, but not all political policies, but really what stood out to me was that he treated the arguments and the people with dignity, of their complexity, willingness to like really take seriously what was on the other side. And so I had the privilege of working closely with him for five years. And then through that, I came to understand what I think the fundamental problem in America is today, which is the breakdown of the social fabric. And by that, I mean, basically community. I mean that the things that 50 or 70 years ago, we had structures in society that really supported local communities. <laughs> People lived in the same place most of their lives. They worked at one or two places most of their lives. They went to church or whatever religious thing with the people down the street, some of whom were rich, some of whom were poor. Like it just, there was, and yes, that version of society had lots of problems, lots of injustice. But I think that a fundamental human need, which is for community and belonging, was met by the way that our society was set up there. And that has broken down. And I see that as the root, a major root cause of everything else that's happening. So anyway, I 2016 election happened. It became clear that we are so divided, we can barely talk to each other, let alone function politically. And I found braver angels because I was covering it, like as a reporter. And there was something, I went on this road trip with them where they were going around the country doing workshops. And there was something that happened in those workshops where at the end of them, when I would start interviewing people, and these were people who walked in like super polarized, like intense tea party, or you think everybody who voted for Trump is a racist or whatever. But when I interviewed them at the end, there was something in their eyes. And I think it was hope, hope and, and also joy, interestingly, at seeing that the people on the other side 
were in fact their brothers and sisters and neighbors and cousins and friends. And I love that. When I saw that in their eyes, I knew I have to work with this organization. I have to help make this happen for people, make this more powerful, support this in any way I can. And so that's, uh, I guess, a long answer to your question, but that's why I'm in this work and, and just sort of how I got here. As director of debates for Brave Angels, April, you see the curiosity in the community as a problem to civic polarization, as you mentioned in your, your uh, brief statement there. But but polarization is more than just disagreements at the at this particular time in, in U.S. time clock. Now people don't just disagree. Many Americans are deeply mm-hmm. concerned about the culture of shaming and silencing that mm-hmm. some see as becoming more dominant in American American institutions and even college campuses. What's your take on shaming and silencing and what would you say Braver Angels can or does do to address the shaming and silences of citizens and even on college campuses? Oh my goodness. I love this question. So I work on, probably half of my work is on college campuses. And so I will speak to that in a second. And I I love it. I think though, that the thing you just named around silencing and whether real or perceived, right? Like there are people who think I'm not doing that. I'm just trying to help educate people or protect people who have been marginalized. Okay. But the perceived silencing that people experience, I think is actually one of the most powerful drivers of, of everything that's happening in politics. I think that there are nasty elements of the right and the left, and there are things that are driving people towards them. And I think the silencing or perceived silencing is one of the biggest on the right, especially. Although interestingly, when I talk to people on the left, they don't like it either. <laughs> like there's this idea that people on the left are cool with it because they want everyone to use the right language or whatever. But actually there are a few vocal people on the left who function in my experience as sort of the, the police or the regulators of this stuff. And everybody else feels like they're not sure they're not going to say the wrong word and get kicked out of the club. And so I think this is a very real phenomenon and and that it's a, a just incredibly powerful in driving what some of the more challenging things we're seeing. So what I think it fundamentally is, is that in the pursuit of justice, the left, which very much to its credit is much more concerned in my experience with justice than the right. The right is focused on other good things, but the left, like, man, that is their their sort of one of their core drivers. The left in previous decades focused a lot on statutes and law, changing those as a way to try to create equality. But these days, either because a lot of that work has been done or for some other reason, there's much more focus on culture and norms. And how do we change the fact that when a person of color walks into a room that where they're a numerical minority, they just know that it's not safe, right? How do we change that? I just have to say, I love that pursuit, that question, that mission, and firmly support it as probably most of us do. The issue is, in my opinion, that so norms are the like unspoken social rules that we all pick up and follow, right? And I think that what the left is doing is it's trying to change norms. But the problem is it's doing that faster than they can typically be changed. And the tool that they're using to get people to go along with it is shaming and and shunning, which is, I guess you could say it's effective in the short term, but it is absolutely corrosive in the long term. 
And so to give a more concrete explanation of this, if you walk into a room and so <laughs> I learned the other day that the term gypsy is not acceptable now, and that's fine with me, but I didn't know that. And so it, it could easily have happened that I could have walked into a room and said the word gypsy and had people say, oh, we don't say that. And there's a, a dynamic or, you know, I'm not trying to put myself in one role or other in that scenario, but there are a lot of contexts where people kind of innocently say the wrong thing. And then the response is shame. And so my just social like, oh, like social opprobrium that is, I would say, pretty serious, like pretty severe. So what I think the answer is, is to shift from, and this is going to sound funny, but any Catholics or Jewish people listening, I feel might relate to this. I say this as somebody who has a strong heritage of guilt culture. Um, I think we need to shift from a shame culture to a guilt culture. And what that means, so shame says you are bad. Guilt says you did a bad thing. And the thing is that shame culture says we can't be in relationship anymore. And that's the kind of polarization we have right now is if if you don't agree with me, if you don't know the right way to think, we can't be, we can't be in relationship. I can't be friends with you. I can't be your brother. I can't, you know, I can't tolerate you, even though you're my parents, whatever that is. But a guilt culture says, <laughs> you shouldn't have done that, right? Like, and that's not pleasant exactly either for people. But that guilt culture says, we can be friends, we can stay in relationship, I still love you, but you can't do that. You can't say that thing. And so I think that my vision for what this would look like if we are able to really improve it is a culture that says that has every capacity to evolve those norms to be able to support justice, make people feel safe, all of those things, but that doesn't do so in a way that actually destroys relationships with the people who made the mistakes or or made the mistakes or said the wrong thing because they're a little, they got a little bias, right? Like either way, I think that they are going to, the best way to change them and to change those behaviors is going to be <laughs> guilt rather than shame. It's saying you made a mistake, not you are a mistake. Now, with regard to college campuses, like I said, probably half or more of my time is spent working with college students and I love them. They are, I think I said last time that if I had to pick one group to work with, I would work with students because they are so motivated, passionate, open. Life hasn't sort of beat them down yet typically. But on this issue, what I see is that a friend of mine who runs Heterodox Academy, his name is John Tomasi. He's a professor at Brown. He said in a conversation I had with him a year ago that if he had one word to describe students, like student culture, like how are they, it would be vigilant. And I think that's right. I think that everybody's afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing, that they're going to show up in a way that makes it seem like they're not the right kind of person. And again, it's not that we can't change behavior and, and even belief systems. It's that we've got to do it in a way that says we're still going to be in relationship. And so when I work on college campuses, first of all, college students love debates because they're spicy. They're interesting. And everybody, college students don't tend to identify as much with an explicit label. In fact, they tend to hate them. So we don't ask them like, are you red or are you blue? What we say is, what do you think about guns? Or what do you think about abortion? And they have a lot. <laughs> they have so much to say about that. And so if you give them a space, which is what 
we try to do where we say, yeah, tell us what you think. Like, it's okay if you don't know what you think. And it's okay if you think something that isn't popular and then give them that chance to speak and ask questions. They are super into it. And so I actually think that college campuses are one of the places where we have the most potential, we as a society, to make change quickly and powerfully. Because these students are, they care, they're passionate, they're morally ambitious, they're literally ambitious, like professionally, and and they want a way to engage that enables them to really think out loud and test out ideas, but do so in a way that preserves a relationship. And so that's what we try to give them. And at the end of our debates, people consistently say, I just loved that I wasn't going to get jumped on. I felt safe in that room. I never feel safe in rooms like that, things like that. So that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, as a, a self-identified feminist and Braver Angels director of debates, you bring attention to the tension between the need for civil norms and and in society and and the pressure people feel to pursue social justice in ways that uh, lead to quick progress. How does Braver Angels address the need for civil norms, and what would you describe as a civil norm? Is there a quick fix or a way to make progress in reaching civil norms in our society? I appreciate you picking up that I am a feminist and I care about civil norms. And because that is part of why I care so much about this, because I feel like in some ways this challenge like lives inside me because I am a feminist. I have worked on a sexual assault hotline for a long time. I come from a place in the country where like raising your hand in class as a girl wasn't really a thing you did. And like, I just, (laughs) I'm a feminist to my bones. And I also see that there are kinds of activism and pressure for change that make society better. And there are kinds that rip it apart. And this gets into sort of what we were talking about with shame culture and guilt culture. I am consistently like multiple times a week, I'm in rooms where people are saying things that I find dehumanizing. And which is just to say like, not just like a little off, but like actively like problematic in a really serious way. And I have to sit there and do the thing that I try to teach other people to do, which is breathe and remember that this is actually the kind of change I believe in is the kind where you stay in relationship and you walk with people and you try to help them see what you know that is unique and you try to learn what they have seen that is unique. And I think that for me personally, one of the things that I most want to help people see is some of the things that make me identify as a feminist, right? Like, what does it mean to live in a, to like (laughs) walk down a street at night and not, and just not be able to feel like you're going to be okay, right? Like, what does that mean? And so those are some of the things that I care the most about sharing and helping people see. But I, you can't force it. You just can't. Or you can marginalize people, right? Like this is what I would say to if there are folks who say, well, but why can't we just defeat them, right? Why can't we just beat them down and make sure they don't have power? And the answer is we've still got to live in a country with folks, you know, from a super callous perspective, I suppose you could marginalize a few people, but the kind of change I want to see as a feminist requires changing a lot of people. I would say that it requires changing more than half of people with regard to how they understand in particular sexual violence and what it means to be a woman in our culture. That's it. <laughs> That's it. I, I, I'm not only would I not want to, but it would be foolish for me to try to marginalize everybody who doesn't understand that yet. The thing to do is to be in relationship with them and try to learn what they can teach me and try to teach them what I have seen.
And so I think that, you know, Braver Angels as an organization doesn't have official positions in almost anything. One of the few is that we believe that no one is not worth talking to. And I know that's a double negative, but I think it's actually the right way to say it. Nobody is not worth talking to. And I believe that. And I <laughs> I guess it seems like the longer road, but I actually think it's the one where you stay in relationship as you try to bring people towards change. But I think it's, it's the right road from a sort of moral how you treat people perspective. But I also think it's actually the strategic one. I think that we can't we can't shut down half the country and expect that to lead to and frankly, we have, right? Like whoever we is, in my case, feminists, but like you could say this no matter what position you're starting in, there have been efforts to shut down everybody on the other side. And it's led to a kind of culture war, not not to the world that we want. So that's how I would answer that. I have a quote from an essay you wrote in January 21 for Comet Magazine. The title of the article is Building Trust Across the Political Divide. And in it, you say the Braver Angels style of bridging through conflict goal is to build people's capacity to engage the other side and even enable them to build relationships of love through difference rather than in spite of it. Uh, so achieving this goal can bring some surprises. What are some steps toward achieving ongoing positive outcomes? And what are some surprises that you have found along the way? You know, I'm going to answer that sort of from a personal perspective, following on what we were just talking about. I think that the thing we've all got to learn is that we don't actually have to be afraid of conflict and we need tools to navigate it, right? We need to know how to do it. And so what Braver Angels tries to do is first, you've got to help people remember that it's that there's a point, that it is actually worthwhile to try to talk to those liberals or those crazy right wing nuts or whatever, right? Like you have to, people are so far gone on this that there's so much, I just can't talk to those people. I don't even know how to live with those. I, I'm not going to talk to my father-in-law anymore, whatever, right? So the first thing to do is to basically offer hope to help them see there is <laughs> there is someone on the other side over there saying those crazy things who's worth talking to, who you can find common ground with, like it's possible. And then the next thing that we have to do is give them tools, right? Tools to do that. And so there are a bunch of specifics, right? And we have lots of trainings for this. I'll give you a, a sort of a verbal example, which is called paraphrasing. Uh, it's everybody, one of the, a fundamental truth about this work is that people usually need to be heard before they can listen. And so what we try to do is call people to be leaders and to be willing to be the ones who listen first, right? And so and part of helping people feel like they've been heard is there are specific techniques for that. So paraphrasing is saying, let me see if I can repeat back to you what you said, just to make sure I've got it. I think you said that you think that the Constitution was created to protect us from the government, yeah, from the government, and the Bill of Rights says that we have the fundamental right to bear arms, and that's important to you for X, Y, Z reason. Did I get that? And then the person will say, yeah, that's right, and they'll feel heard. Or they'll say, uh, no, let me, let me help you, let me change that a little. And what that does, and, and then you can continue with the conversation, right? Then you can say, okay, I think I hear you. 
what I would wonder is X or my question for you or my opinion, whatever, you can move on. But just that act of paraphrasing means that A, you disagree more accurately because if you repeat it wrong and they correct you, then like you're talking about the same thing again rather than ships passing in the night. And B, they feel like you paid attention and you listened and that just changes things. So, and then there are questions. How do you ask a question of curiosity that's not a gotcha question? There are other tools. Like I said, we have lots of trainings for that, but that's an example. And the other sort of technique I would mention is related to what I was saying a minute ago. It's not, you got to understand that when you decide to enter this conversation, you are going to have to be a leader. There is a little bit of sacrifice involved. And that mean that's because you're going to have to self-regulate, like you're going to have to handle your emotions while the other person says something you think is really a problem. And so for me, when people say, I don't know, boys will be boys or whatever thing that drives me nuts about feminist stuff, I have to sit there and say, and and breathe and say, okay, I can feel my, you know, my hackles rising. I can feel that happening. And I'm just going to, I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to, I'm going to take a pause if I need to. And later I'm going to process this, but for the moment. So what I'm doing, right, is taking care of myself so that I can hang in and stay in the conversation rather than reacting in a like lash out kind of way. And then in terms of surprises, like those are all over the place. The first surprise is usually, oh, they are a good person. <laughs> like that is my mother talking. I see, I see. The second surprise is why they will often believe things that are for slightly different reasons than you thought. And then the last surprise and one of the most rewarding ones, this doesn't always happen, but usually you find, well, I, a thing that I think does always happen is you find either common ground about the policies. So that happens, especially on things like abortion. Almost everybody, well, a, a significant majority of Americans think there should be some limits, but but not a total ban. But if you listen to our polit our media, you would think everybody thinks it should be all or nothing, right? So usually you find some degree of policy alignment and common ground there. But even if you don't, you will usually find values common ground, which is to say, yeah, I care about protecting our kids too, again with guns. Yeah, I care about safety too. And I also care that people be able to protect themselves or whatever it is, right? Like you find values underneath the stuff that actually you can relate to, even if you would apply them quite differently. So yeah, those are that's the sort of progression of surprises and, and the reason that I think this is actually really rewarding if you can hang in there and, and make it through some of the tough spots. Yeah, you mentioned in one of your recent podcasts, an interview with evolutionary biologist and professor Heather Hine, that you notice the changes in the thinking of some acquaintances and others along a, a wide political spectrum. You think these folks, whether left or right, have sort of drifted in their thinking from moderate to more radical review by culture events in the, uh, in, the, in the recent years. Would you expand on this to give us a sense of what you feel is happening with these acquaintances and, and how they're drifting? Yeah, absolutely. It has a lot to do with the silencing dynamic that we were talking about earlier, or at least the perception of it. And it's... <laughs> Man, it's 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 demoralizing to watch, but but I have a number of friends. So I live in Washington D.C. I know people who care way too much <laughs> about politics in every direction you can think of. And what I I could give you, I, I won't obviously name them, but like I could give you four or five examples of people on both left and right who started off pretty moderate and pretty like, well, there are nuances. This is complex. Let's do the research. Who uh, because of either the way they've been, usually it's it's something 
about how they have been treated personally. So one person after the George Floyder said that it was that we should try to learn what was going on that led people to disagree about this and not see that it was a murder. And uh, he got jumped on as a, a white man and told that that was this was not the time, that was not an acceptable comment, et cetera, et cetera. In his church, I know another person who was a volunteer police officer who got shouted down by people in his neighborhood saying, how can you wear that uniform? Who do you think you are? I'm never speaking to you again. I know other people, so it goes left and right, but what happens is that people, it radicalizes them. They start saying, okay, fine. This isn't about nuance. This isn't about complexity. This is about, I mean, the word war is a little extreme, but it's, they all of a sudden start shifting the way that they engage to beat the other side, to tear them down there. <laughs> you know how in Congress, if the Democrats support something, the Republicans have to oppose it and vice versa, because it's, it, at least that's how they seem to behave, because they think that's what's in their political interests. That's what I see people becoming, is instead of like, well, what's really going on here? What's the on the ground? What are the nuances? They instead say, well, the other side said this, so I have to disagree with it. I have to fight it. And it's really sad to watch. And it usually is because of something that happens to them specifically that is where they get shamed for something that they really didn't mean in a bad way. And so once again, we come back to, I think we should have a guilt culture, but boy, it's, it's not going well, I guess is what I would say. There are a lot of folks that I know who just, that happens to them and they change. And it's not that they couldn't come back, but I haven't seen any of them come back yet. You mentioned something in our last interview about coded language, and you may want to refer to that at some point. But I want to go to the next question. When you talked with Professor Hagen about the unrest and difficulty in college students who, who faced actually losing friends and even jobs in the light of their political differences or positions. So, so college-age students, and we have to expect even younger students are, are struggling. How do you use the, the word silence and uh, coded language with college students? Why would it be so important for them? Yeah, we've got to remember, right? I imagine most of the folks listening to this, I mean, maybe you got a bunch of youngsters and if so, hey y'all. But I imagine most of us listening right now are older than, you know, 23 or whatever. But if you think back to when you were in high school or when you were in your early 20s, your friends are everything, you know? Your social life is everything. It's so important. And it's, and also you want to be edgy. You want to be like, you want to fight the man a little bit, right? Like, and, and everybody's doing that. And that's, what's cool. And so then and the problem is that the way that's showing up today is it's with regard to politics and justice. And, and interestingly, if you're on the right, college students on the right have their own version of this, and it has to do with flouting the the sort of woke culture. It has to do with saying like, <laughs> with refusing to use transgender or gender neutral pronouns and things like that. And there's a there's a whole, because of the institutional power dynamics, there is more emphasis on social speech policing by the left, but it exists on the right too. And it's just sort of the flip, like the mirror image. So if you're a young person and you want to like be edgy, you want to be cool, your friends matter more than anything to you, and you live in an intensely social media moderated environment, there is so much pressure. I said earlier that like the the word vigilant is is a big part of this. There is so much pressure because because it feels like you're never safe, right? What if you say the wrong thing? What if you just didn't know? And I really would like to get to a world where 
people understand that sometimes you just didn't know and that doesn't make you bad but that's not not knowing the law is not an excuse for breaking it in today's climate and so by silencing i mean the chill that happens when people are afraid they're going to say the wrong thing and so they don't talk right that's what happens and then they sort of jump onto bandwagons that if somebody says well this thing was totally wrong then all of a sudden everybody else says yeah it was wrong it was wrong it was wrong and but people don't feel free they can't just talk i hear that over and over and over from people at every age but especially college students because they want to right they're trying to explore they're trying to figure out what's this world about what do i think but they often are just um they're just afraid to open their mouths and so that's what i mean by silencing and and I also, so like, for example, I've had students tell me, not only do I have to use the right words if I tweet or if I am on, you know, whatever social media network, but I get in trouble socially if I don't say the right thing. Like if somebody says this thing was abhorrent and I don't chime in and say, yeah, totally then I get socially punished for that. Like you have to, it's not enough to just be quiet. You have to like say the right things at the right moments too. And I'm, I'm describing this in somewhat intense terms, but that's because I feel what I hear is that students actually, yeah, they're just afraid all the time. And like, that's crummy. That's not a good way to explore ideas, to develop your identity, to feel like you're safe in relationships. I think it has, speech uh, policing is not the only thing certainly contributing to the mental health crisis that young folks are in, but I think social media has a lot to do with it. And, and it just, all this has eroded people's ability to feel safe in their friendships. And that's a big deal when you're 20 or 22 or 17. Well, let's talk some more about feminism. We've touched on the topic <laughs> some in our interviews, but not as much uh, depth as we'd like. We've established you as a feminist as well as a conservative. Some mm -hmm. might ask, how do you meld these two philosophies, political <laughs> views and actions? You can address that if you like, but to a little different direction, you expressed in your interview with Dr. Haling that issues like sexual assault is one of those mm -hmm. issues that clearly resonates with women. It's a need to be resolved, and the feeling is it needs and has to be done now. There are two things I'd like you to address. One is if you want to change society fast to effectively deal with this violence, how do you find the solution to sexual violence and find it fast? The second is well, how do you deal with the trauma then of the rage that results from a violent oppositional argument or, you know, a sexual advance? Well, I've got to tell you guys, this is once again one of the best interviews I've ever done because you're asking questions that are so right. That is, oh my goodness, that is the right question. And wow. All right. Um, so yeah, I'll try to answer those in order. You are speaking to my spirit when you say, but what about, we need to deal with this now. Like this is not something that we can just be like, oh yeah, it's fine, we'll deal, we'll change slowly, it'll be okay. No, it's not okay. And I just really relate to that, feel that, care about that. And and yet here we are, right? In a society where <laughs> the most widespread kind of violence is a silent kind. And it happens to actually both women and men. You, know, you can bring domestic violence into this as well, but sexual violence is the most common kind of trauma for regular people who've not been to war that's out there. And it's the one of the things that working on the sexual assault hotline I worked on taught me is that this is unbelievably widespread. It's not, this is people, and I of course then did a bunch of research and 
I guess the simple answer to, to your first question is education. It's helping people see that this is there. Because the thing that we have going for us is that particularly with sexual violence, like once people see it, they care, they want to do something about it, they want to fix it, like you don't have to convince them. And everybody, everybody who's got a good heart in their chest, which is almost everybody, right? If they can see it, they will sign up to be outside of the the true and the beautiful and the good and wanting to fix it. Now, whether they have the right ideas about how, that's a whole other question. Okay. But the main thing is just getting people to see it. And that's more complicated than it sounds because, so I'm drawing this a little bit from, my favorite book on trauma is called uh, Trauma and Recovery. It's by Judith Herman. It's a sort of central book in that field. And in the early part of that book, one of the things that she points out is that the way that the brain processes atrocity is, well, trauma by definition is something that cannot be handled by the systems that we have to cope with it. And so atrocity falls into that category. And what happens is that the memories don't encode right because we can't really handle the experience. And so you get this sort of two-mode way of being. And that's this is just inside a person in your own brain, which is you suppress it, the brain suppresses it, pretends it never happened, or, and then alternately, the memories intrude. And all of a sudden we need to say like, this happened, we have to deal with it, this is important right now. And I could go into the neurological reasons for that. But but the, the thing I wanna emphasize here is that there's a similar dynamic in society where we sort of go through these spasms where for a long time we'll say, yeah, racism is over, sexism, we've solved that, women are working now. But then we will go through these periods where, again, sort of speaking metaphorically, the reality will intrude in a very painful way. And then we don't really know how to deal with it. And so I see the recent Black Lives Matter and all that as, you know, support and think is great, but that's a the George Floyd stuff. All of that is an example of sort of like what in, in an individual would be considered a flashback, not because it's in the past in this case, but it's the intrusion of the reality and the pain. And so we sort of go back and forth between these, like, it didn't happen and this is overwhelmingly painful modes. And neither of those is actually in an individual or in a society what leads to healing and integration. And so so when I say we need to help people see what's happening, it's really not easy because what we need them to see is atrocity. And it runs into this sort of bipolar I mean, people just can't handle it, really. And so that's why we see all these arguments, which about, I don't know, five years ago, there were all these arguments about sexual assault on college campuses, and was it one in four, maybe more, or was that an exaggerated statistic? And it drove me nuts, because the right question about that is not, is that statistic correct? It's what do we do to prevent this, right? But the reason that people fight about the statistics, in my view, is because it's very hard to handle the idea that this is happening and what it means about who we are, who people are, what, like the the fact that this is in us, that we have a, I um, could give you a whole little diatribe on rape culture, but it's very real. And even that phrase is quite triggering for people. Like people will say, okay, I'm gonna stop listening to you because you just use that super lefty term rape culture, which makes me very uncomfortable and I just think, can you, let's just, okay, never mind, right? And yet that is a real thing. And so I think that if I could change one, I also think that with regard to sexual violence in particular, men typically feel implicated. And that's, I think, a simple function of you tell a story and you relate to the person who looks like you. And that's just the way people be, like are. And so if I could like change one awareness, smaller than like knowing how much this happens and how bad it is, I would change the fact, the idea that sexual violence is something that only happens to women. 
because the best numbers we have on men suggest that it's one in six. Like that's a lot, a lot of men. And it's actually worse for them because they are more in the dark. They feel more shame. I mean, not that everybody doesn't feel a ton of shame about this, but like it's worse because it's not part of our cultural understanding that this is a thing that happens to men and it doesn't make them not masculine. It's not their fault. None of that. So I would, I hope to, and this actually might be like, you know, if I, if I move on to another mission at some point, this will probably be it. And, and a thing that I would want to work on is the belief, the awareness in society that this is a thing that happens to everybody, black, white, brown, male, female, other, old, young, whatever, that this is a problem that everybody, that, it, that implicates everybody and that we're all part of. And also that perpetrators come in all shapes and forms too. And all that to say, I hope that someday we can change our simple story about this because that will enable us to deal with the problem much better. Now, with regard to what do we do with the trauma and rage, I think the first thing to say is honor it, right? say like, yeah, that's real. And I think that we could we could do with a, a, a good bit of time just doing that. But the way that I think we actually move forward, I, I believe strongly that a lot of the tools that help an individual heal can also help society heal. And so again, going back to Judith Herman's trauma and recovery, there are three phases of healing that she sort of that, um, are some of the structure of that book. And the first one is stabilize, right? So be able to be okay in the moment. The second one is reconstruct a narrative. And the third one is rejoin the community or become able to be in relationship with the community again. And the one I'll focus on for this purpose to answer that question is narrative, because I think that a lot of what's happening in our politics is that there is some kind of trauma. There is, and which again, many shapes and forms, et cetera, but people have got to be able to, part of healing is being able to tell a true story about what happened to you or your people. And so part of how, but we have to, that story can't be, I wanna say this carefully, it has to be true and commensurate with what happened, but it also needs to give you a way to move forward. And so I think that what I would love to see is for our society to, and this is again, truth and reconciliation. This is, I think, part of the fundamental reconciliation work is how do we help people tell a true story that means that they can move forward and that we can all move forward and live next to each other. And I think what happens now often is that people don't have the support they need. They have to psychologically have a way to deal with it. So they tell some kind of story, but it's a story that demonizes the other side or says, and by the way, I'm all for holding the other side accountable, but but we've got to find a way to live with each other. And so I think that I would love to see a way for us to have communities, not just individuals, co-create stories and awareness that can help us all look at what happened, right? Don't just have the pain intrude, look at it and say, okay, but also be able to say, we can, we can move forward from here. We're still, we're still going to be people. We're still going to be a community. And I think we don't have enough time for me to go into the nuances of how exactly that's done, but that's, that's the answer is honor the pain, help people stabilize, help everybody tell a story that is true but also gives us a way to move forward. And that story then is the basis for the, the renewed or reformed community. I don't disagree with that belief, but I wonder if there is yet another issue that explains why hearts and minds are so hard to, to change. You mentioned neurological issues yeah. as well. The world-renowned psychologist and learning theorist Jean Piaget explains in his book, The Psychology of Intelligence, quote, that in order for learning to occur, new information has to be somewhat 
analogous with information that the individual already possesses. Piaget explains that when the individual can relate new information with what the person believes, then what he terms a schema has been formed and learning has occurred. So however, learning is going to be difficult if new information opposes the knowledge the individual already possesses. Now, I suspect that's part of the discourse that is occurring between people on the right and left. So, April Lawson, does Piaget's schema theory play a part in terms of explaining why it is so difficult to change hearts and minds? If so, Piaget's schema theory would support your belief that people with conflicting opinions must become active listeners. What do you have to say to that idea? Well, once again, I just have to tell you, I love your questions. It's That's brilliant. and. That's so true. Um, I also want to just add a little nuance that I don't think pain, the like stories that make sense of suffering are the only thing driving political views. What I think they are is they are part of the glue that keep people really committed to views that they maybe shouldn't be committed to in this in that like that that's part of what gets in the way of of people being able to move on or to learn or to listen. But that's not the only thing going on. And I love what you're bringing up because, yeah, I, I mean, first of all, I would never dare to disagree with Piaget. Too, he's too good. But I think that that's absolutely true. And it relates to a phenomenon that we think a lot about, which is confirmation bias. The thing where if something we see the world through the lens of the ideas and schemas that we've already created. And man, there's some really depressing research about how if you give people facts that don't go with those presumptions, it's like they just bounce off, like they don't even enter. And so it is absolutely true that listening is key for that. But what I would say too, is that here we've got to talk about the difference between listening and hearing. Like people can hear a fact or a, a contradictory idea or an experience that doesn't fit their precepts and it will just bounce off. There has to be something in them that wants to listen, that wants to know. And, and so that's where curiosity is, you know, the one way that that can show up. I also think that relationship and care give us strong motivation to actually listen. But listening is not just a matter of having the sounds come to you. <laughs> it's a matter of, are you open to receiving them? And so I think that because that's what can change, that's what can help you be able to have your schemas change and grow and expand and access the world as it, as it really is more fully. And so I agree with you very much that that is a big dynamic. And I also would say, you know, on the one hand, people have suffered and that's something I have a lot of compassion for. On the other hand, people are arrogant and they're lazy and they think they're right and they don't want to do the work of like, it's much more sort of comfortable for your ego to just be like, oh yeah, those crazy conservatives or whatever, than it is to actually do the work of, of listening. And so I think there is a, there's a, <laughs> I almost want to say there's a red and a blue approach to this. The blue, the, the blue one being like, yeah, empathize with the pain. And the red one being like, all right, guys, step up. Like, come on. We want to expect better not to have to be blue and red. I'm just caricaturing. But I, yeah, I really agree. And I think that that's part of why this is heart work. It's not just information work. So I really appreciate that point. So April, let's bring this conversation into a situation that did occur, political and rather violent. We all know about the, the January 6, 2021 insurrection, a violent attack on the Capitol building that took the lives of four people. The select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol 
documents that the, the fact that far right extremist groups were involved in the attack. An article published by the Media Center, November 29, 2022, states, quote, the select committee's investigation demonstrates that when Donald Trump summons a mob to assemble in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, the Oath Keeps and other extremist groups heard that call and began to plan and coordinate, end quote. We know that the far-right extremist groups were involved in the planning and the attack on the Cap building. Many of those groups still exist. How did we begin to a dialogue with the far-right extremist groups that were involved in an insurrection? It's a great question. I'm going to answer in two ways. The first is, and this is going to sound like a dodge, but I will answer your question straight on in a second. The first thing we've got to do is remember that not everybody are those far right or far left extremist groups. I think one of the most almost foolish problems in our society today is that people see on TV or on their cell phone these rather extreme people on whichever side, and they they conflate that with, with regular people on the other side, and they are not the same. We live in media environments that want us to lump those all, all those people into one sort of straw man picture. And I think that just remembering that like the vast majority of and, and here's a here's a controversial point. I would say that the vast majority of Republicans, of right wingers, are not the same as those people who broke into the Capitol. And even if they would say they don't want to call it an insurrection, they want to call it a protest, back to code language. I think that it's important to, I feel like we're all trapped in this cycle where the media says the right is this and the left is that. And then we all adopt the language and then it's like the people on the other side are in fact all those crazy extremists because they're talking the same way. But that's just because of the media environment we live in. It's not because of who they actually are. So that's the first thing I would say. Remember that when we engage with most people, we are not engaging with far right or far left extremists, even if they use some language that we have associated with those groups. Then to the question of how do we actually engage those people, that's really interesting. And I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of research on this, and it's hard. The some of the same things apply with regard to paraphrasing, listening, building trust. I mean, there's a way in which the whole ballgame is building trust. Like, can you create a, a human relationship with those people, whoever they are, that where they trust you and you trust them? Them. And that requires the same things that it requires any other time, which are humility, openness. You don't have to give up your principles. That's actually, I'm just going to underscore that for a second, because one of the things that makes people skeptical of our work often is they think you've got to give up your principles. You're compromising, you're, you're appeasing. This work is not that. There is no, I don't think there's an ethical way to do it if you give up your principles. The idea is you hold on to your principles and you choose to relate to people. You choose to like be in communication with people who believe really differently. But back to how we interact with those groups, I think that, yeah, building trust and all the basic things that are required for that, if it's with an individual who has those beliefs, there's also something strong about getting them outside of their community, if possible. So because echo chambers are a big part of how this all gets maintained, and usually belonging is too. So it's like, you know, gangs on the streets of a city. The reason young men join those is because it feels like a family. It feels like, hey, I belong here. These people are my people. And that happens a lot online, especially right now, but it also happens in person. And so remembering that belonging is what's motivating a lot of that. And then if you can try to even just physically meet with the person in a neutral space that's not defined by that community, that's valuable. And then essentially what you're saying, and this is why it's so important to actually do the reaching out, even though it feels uncomfortable, 
you're saying you can belong with me. You can belong with me instead. You don't have to, those people don't have to be the only source of relationship for you. And so I think that basically giving them a different place to belong is the fundamental answer. Now, <laughs> I will say with regard to far to extremist groups, we also should try to make sure they don't get power, right? I'm not saying that we give them equal, equal access to all the levers of power in society. No, no, no. What I'm saying is we don't throw them away as human beings. We don't banish them, exile them. Because all that happens is that they become more extreme and and are motivated further to do the violent things we want them to not do. Got to bring them in. So. Okay. This is a more general question, April Lawson, in terms of the violence that's going on now in the discourse. The political discourse in the U.S. has become at times uncivil, as evidenced by the fact that the former president along with crowds of his supporters have at times yelled lock her up referring to his opponent while encouraging his supporters to in, to enact violent act a vox news article titled quote donald trump is the accelerant a comprehensive timeline of trump's encouraging hate groups and political discords end quote penned by abriola cns january 9th 2021 states, quote, as far back as 2015, Trump has been connected to documented acts of violence with perpetrators claiming that he was even their inspiration. In fact, dozens of people enacted violence in Trump's name in the years before the Capitol attack, according to a 2020 uh, report from ABC News, end quote. There are armed groups on the left as well. The Not Effort Around Coalition is a well-armed group. So where do we begin in order to tone down the rhetoric and to create a more civil society? Oh, what a good question. What a good question. Yeah, that stuff's really ugly. And it's it's very real. And like, I, I'm a never-Trump conservative. And so <laughs> conservatives who know me will not be surprised to hear me say that I I cannot stand our former president. And I, I think that so many things about him have this undercurrent of violence. Not that he's the only one, but like that's definitely there, in my opinion. And and to be to I mean, to try to be fair, America is unique. We have to remember that like the the fragile and incredibly valuable thing that makes us different is that we manage to have peaceful transitions of power, which is to say the default in politics, the default way that human beings work things out is actually violence. And so it's not a surprise that it's sort of sneaking in and trying to find its way to erupt in our system. What's unusual is that we manage to not do that most of the time. And that's something we have got to protect. That's part of why I'm in this work too, is because I don't think, I think people take for granted that that's going to stick around. And I'm not sure that I think we, if we don't handle this and like take care of it and pay attention, I'm not sure it will. So I take that really seriously. With regard to how do we begin with the discourse, all right, I would give you a couple answers, although I will also just say that this is a really tough problem. I think the hardest nut to crack, Braver Angels has had a pretty significant success piloting and, and developing programs in politics with politicians, but the media is much harder because of its incentive structure. Well, politics also has a bad incentive structure, but anyway, media, I think, is the hardest nut to crack here, and that's because of the way that it's built and because of the internet and a variety of things, but the fact of the matter is that if you make people, if you can hit people's like base emotions, anger, resentment, um, fear, uh, hate, all that stuff uh, discussed, it's a real fast way to get a lot of clicks and a lot of eyeballs. And so we're fighting that. So I would say, so, which is just to say, I don't have a totally satisfactory answer to this, even for myself. But with regard to where we start, I think that answer number one is pay attention to what media you consume. Remember that the media you consume, you you are the product, right? Like 
the media you consume is the thing that you're supporting. And so be careful. Think about that. Don't just, I mean, like <laughs> the people used to accuse that when I worked at the New York Times, people would say, well, the media is making sure that this guy is the nominee because they're covering him so much. And in a way that's true, but why were they covering him? Because people paid attention. And so we've got to find a way to like impose some, to, frankly, to take responsibility for our contributions to the problem as a collective. So pay attention to what you're watching. Remember that that's what you're supporting. The second thing is start at home, you know, start by in your own community and literally often in your own home, be the leader, right? Like not to be sort of goofy, but like be the change you want to see is like actually pretty good advice here. Remember, act out the thing that you want other people to follow, right? And so that means listen openly. That means when you're feel like you're going to blow your top, go into the other room for a minute, right? Like, and all that stuff. So treating, learning, putting in the work to treat others Dif like differently in these conversations and to like have your own little microcosm of positive conversation, that actually is substantive, significant work. Because I actually think that there are two directions from which we can try to solve this problem. One is from the top down, media institutions. Man, we're, we're working on that, but that is a hard one. And not that we're giving up, but that's tough. I think the the more likely route is actually through from, from the ground up. It's people coming to live out in their own lives what good conversations actually looks like that is respectful and honors the dignity and the other people. And then being that in their communities, which will eventually create the demand for media that is better. We also are building a, a media structure, like a, a series of programs and things that we hope can break through. But I think your, your question about how do we start is basically, it's two things, pay attention to what you consume and start at home. So April, at this point, I have to say, April Laws' statement in, in reference to her opposition to Donald Trump is her statement and not the statement of uh, solutions about program or WFMP radio. We will give you, April, an opportunity to share some final thoughts about our topic for the Braver Angels program. Totally. I mean, I just have to say again, I have loved your questions and the way that you guys approach this. It's some of the deepest conversation that I've seen in public about this, and I, I love it. So thank you so much for that. And there's actually a lot to be hopeful about. I know that when we get into this, it can get depressing, but here's the thing that keeps me going. And the reason that I wake up every day, excited to like get to my work. It's because it matters, but it's, but when I start to get bogged down and watch the politicians and watch the media, actually what literally typically happens is that I sign on to a Zoom call with some volunteer who's in Albuquerque who says, hey, I'm in Albuquerque and I really want to see this change. And I'm going to be that person in my community that starts that. And I, I just, I just need tools, but like, I want to make this happen. And there are individuals, there are students on every college campus and there are people that age on uh, every Everywhere in the country, there are individuals in every single community. Thank you so much for having me today. Friends, our conversation today has been with April Lawson, Director of Braver Angels Debate Strategy. April, we appreciate you joining us as we explore more solutions to violence. Thank you once again for sharing your time and experience with our listeners here on Forward Radio. You can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. We air Solutions to Violence on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. A Solutions to Violence program that features 
features April Lawson will air again January 10th and January 11th. The program featuring April Lawson will be placed in our archives January 11th, 23. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose program archives, and scroll down to the Solution to Violence program that features April Lawson. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with April Lawson, you can reach us with the following email address, solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson with Jamie McMillan as your host. We wish you and yours wellness, safety, and until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others to do the same. Thanks for listening.